0: We are deep into our study of Messiah, what Messiah is, what the Messianic era is all about, what are the transformations that will transpire in the times of Messiah, how it all works. For those of y'all not keeping track, this is episode seven on the subject. When we started, I said, maybe we'll do 10, you know, we'll do a really rigorous, comprehensive study. Maybe it will be 10 I think it'll end up being a lot more because I don't want to leave any stone unturned in our pursuit of complete understanding of this important and often misunderstood subject. To review, we started off in episode number one with an introduction to Messiah. We read the two chapters of Rambam on the subject. And then we talked about the objective of Messiah. What is the context of Messiah in the big picture? And we discovered that it is to prepare humanity for Olam Abba. And then we spoke about the mechanisms of Messiah. We talk about all these grand changes that happen to the Jewish nation, to the world at large. Everyone's pursuing wisdom. How does that happen? What are the mechanisms? What are the forces that trigger such fundamental changes? And we talked about four of them. We talked about the messianic revolution, this idea of the elimination of evil. The evil inclination gets unseated. The foreign god gets deposed. And we spoke about the persona of Messiah, this idea of a towering figure at the helm of this movement, what this person is, what they represent, and the impact of who they are. And, uh, the most recent episode, we spoke about the miracles of Messiah, the idea that there's an overlap between the Exodus and Messiah and how the Exodus serves as a template for Messiah and how the miracles of Messiah may lead to the same sort of changes that the miracles of the Exodus unleashed in the Israelites. Now we're going to address the fourth component of this mechanisms of Messiah. This is another central aspect of the Messianic time. And that is the idea of repentance. Repentance is an indispensable part of the Messianic transformation. It is critical to Messiah. And hopefully we'll kind of wrap up the whole larger subject of the mechanisms of Messiah. And we'll talk more about the interrelationship between all these moving parts, the the idea of the evil inclination and these miracles and all the changes that that are going to happen, it all comes down to repentance as we shall see. We spoke about briefly the whole confusing, unclear subject of, of cause and effect. What causes what? What triggers what? And the truth is, of course, we don't know everything, and we're really precluded from understanding, but we're going to lay out what we do know, and even what we don't know, we'll try to say what we don't know. And I always have to give this disclaimer that no one really knows what will happen until it actually happens. So whenever this subject arises, you're going to hear this disclaimer, no one really knows unless you are a prophet, you don't know what will actually happen, when will it happen, how will it happen, what exactly is going to go on. And again, we're going to speak about some of these subjects. We're going to talk about the timing of Messiah. When is it going to come? What do we know about the subject? But always have in the back of your head this assumption that in all of our studies, whenever we're prognosticating and forecasting, we don't exactly know. We're non-prophets. We don't actually know. We will lay out, of course, what we do know and what we can speculate and what we can deduce from the sages. From the literature, from our tradition, but ultimately our ignorance can never be understated or ignored. Now, the subject of repentance and its relationship with Messiah is found everywhere in the literature, in scripture, in the Talmud, in the Midrash. Repentance is a crucial, critical, pivotal part of the Messianic transformation. And when we study the subject, we'll discover that not only is it an aspect of Messiah, it seems that is, that it is the principal trigger of all the changes of the Messianic era. It's the linchpin. It's the catalyst. It's the impetus. It is what actually causes all those changes that we have discussed. When the Jewish nation returns to God, the word and Hebrew for repentance is returning, Shuva, to be shoved, to return, to return to our creator, to restore our relationship with the Almighty, to rectify our previous blunders, to amend our previous mistakes, to undergo a national repentance movement. That is what precipitates, that is what causes, that is what triggers the Messiah and everything that comes along with that. And this is, again, clear in all the literature. For example, the Talmud, the book of Yoma, on page 86b. The book of Yoma is dedicated to the greatest yom, the greatest day, Yom Kippur. Of course, Yom Kippur is a day of repentance. That's the mitzvah of the day. And the Talmud tells us, G'dol great is repentance, for it hastens the redemption. And it quotes a verse in scripture, When will the Redeemer, Messiah, come to Zion? When there are penitents amongst Jacob. Redemption, Messiah, is an outgrowth of repentance. Why will Messiah come? Why will we have a Redeemer in Zion? It's because of the penitents among Jacob source number 1 of many the midrash at the very beginning of genesis it's talking about the four exiles that we mentioned last time there's the babylonian exile and the persian and mede exile and the greek exile and finally the exile of edom and each one of these exiles is ended is concluded is punctuated by a redemption And the final exile will be finished, will conclude with Messiah. Says the Midrash, Messiah is compared to the Spirit of God hovering over the water. What does this mean? It means that Messiah will come in the merit of repentance. Repentance, after all, is compared to water. As it says in Lamentations, chapter 2, when you pour out your heart to the Almighty, i.e. you repent, water is symbolic of repentance. So we have the Talmud, we have the Midrash. Let me read to you the words of the Rambam. Rambam in the Laws of Repentance, chapter 7, law number 5. He says like this, He's talking about repentance. All the prophets, all of them, they instructed about repentance. And then he adds, vain Yisrael nidalim elabetuva. And Israel will only be redeemed only with repentance. And this is where he prophesied in the Torah that in the end, in the end of the exile, Israel, the nation, will repent and then will be redeemed. So again, we're seeing this across the panoply of Jewish literature that repentance is intimately connected to Messiah. But the truth is, the fact that repentance causes Messiah, it's evident in the Torah. It's explicit in the Torah. The verse, or the verses, the series of verses that talk about Messiah, we've seen them in the past. It's found in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is where the Torah talks about Messiah. This is where the Torah talks about the Almighty gathering the Jews in from all four corners of the world. And the circumcision of the heart that we spoke about. How does that section begin? It begins with repentance. And it continues with repentance. And it concludes with repentance. Repentance. Chapter 30 of Devarim, verse 1. And it will be when all these things befall you, the blessing and the curse, and you will take the message to heart, amidst all the nations that the Almighty expelled you to. Verse 2. You will repent and come back all the way to Hashem, your God, and you'll hearken to His voice. You and your children, all of Yal, will return to God with all your hearts and with all your soul. Repentance amidst the nations. You'll hearken to God. You'll return all the way back to God, you and your children, the whole nation, with all your hearts and with all your soul. And then, the verse continues, God will return your captives. So, the Almighty is going to respond to our repentance by giving us back our captives. And he will have mercy upon us. And he will gather us in from amongst all the nations that he disseminated us to. We could be at the edge of the heaven. We could be at the far, most far flung corners of the earth. And from there, the mighty will gather us in. And from there, he will take us and he'll bring us back to the land that your forefathers inherited. And you will inherit it. And he will do good to you. And he will increase you more than your forefathers. And he will circumcise your heart. This is all Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is my own translation. I'm just reading the Hebrew and translating it. So this might not match your translation, but this is what it says. God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your children. And you will love Hashem, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. And all these curses that the Almighty threatened you with, and that you were recipients of some of them, those curses, those admonitions, those maledictions, will be placed upon your enemies and your haters. So can we have this piece of scripture that talks about the Jewish people being subject to very difficult circumstances being sent to very distant places and then having an awakening, having a spiritual renaissance and returning to God with all our hearts, with all our souls. And right away, immediately, the Almighty says, okay, you're my people. And he begins to do wonderful things to us, to do good, to be merciful, to gather us in. To take all those terrible curses and put them on our enemies. To circumcise our heart. To give us back the land of our forefathers. These are the first seven verses of chapter 30 of, De- of Devarim Deuteronomy. And then in verse 8, we read something very interesting. And you will repent. And you will hearken to the voice of Hashem your God, and you will do all His mitzvos. If you read it, you'll you'll discover something unusual. Verse two, it talked about repentance. Verse eight, it once again talks about repentance. Hearkening to the voice of Hashem our God, it seems to be repetitive. We'll get to that in a second. And then verse nine. After we have the second repentance, God will increase us. He will proliferate us. And all of our handiwork will be successful. Our children, our livestock, our produce. God will delight over us as he delighted over our forefathers. That's verse 9. In verse 10, why? Because you have hearkened to the voice of Hashem your God, to observe his mitzvos and his statutes, to follow the Torah, for you shall return to Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For a third time in verse 10, we read about repentance. These are the verses in the Torah that most explicitly talk about Messiah, circumcision of the heart coming back to the land, having this incredible renaissance. There's an incredible comment in Ramban. If you look at these series of verses, you have the Jewish people doing something and you have God doing something. We have our repentance and our hearkening to Hashem our God and observing the Torah and the mitzvot, that's what we do. And you have all the things that the Almighty does. To bless us, and to love us, and to delight over us, and to bring us back to the land, and to circumcise the heart, etc. Says the Ramban, they are interconnected. Moreover, the Ramban identifies for us what is the cause and what is the effect. Says the Ramban, this is what the Talmud tells us, Habalatar this series of verses that start off with us repenting and continue with the Almighty doing all these wonderful things for us, this is a fulfillment of what our Sadists tell us. Someone who wants purity will be aided from above. The verse is telling us, there's a promise here, if you return with all your heart, the Almighty will aid you. The way the Ramban frames this, he tells us what the cause and what the effect is. We had a, a big mishmash of all these things that we read about Messiah, that there's gonna be this king who comes, and there's gonna be this elimination of the HRL, be slaughtered, and all these miracles are happening. Oh, and there's also repentance. Where does it begin? Where does it start? What is the first step? The first step we're told is repentance. And when we repent, the Almighty reciprocates. And he'll circumcise our heart and gather us in and bless us and bless our handiwork, etc., etc. The Messianic Renaissance begins with national repentance. Who gets this all started? We do. And the Almighty reciprocates. In Kabbalistic terminology, they talk about things that are initiated from above and things that are initiated from below. Messiah, we're told, the Ramban says it explicitly, Messiah is initiated from below. We have to get this whole process started. How does the whole process of Messiah begin? With repentance. But there's another point here. Repentance is not this one and done, this discrete, isolated thing you repent and that's it. It's clear from the verses that it's, it's a process. It's a continuum. It's a continuum of successive stages of repentance. And each stage of repentance unlocks a parallel movement by God towards us. Every step that we take Towards him, he responds with a step towards us, and this, of course, results in a virtuous cycle, because when God's distant from us and we're distant from Him, the relationship it doesn't really have much grounds. And that first step is really hard because He's so distant. But then He takes a step to us; He reciprocates, and now the the next step that we take is much easier because we're already closer. And with each step, he takes a step towards us. And thus each successive repentance, each successive returning to God is accompanied by a parallel movement by God and thus is much easier. We noted that in these series of verses, it mentions repentance multiple times. It starts off, verse 2, you repent, you return to God, you hearken to his voice. You and your children with all your hearts, with all your soul. And then verse 8, we noted, it says again repentance. And verse 10, it says again repentance. This is because the repentance, and certainly the repentance of Messiah, it's not just one thing. It's a process of progressively deeper movements of repentance. And with each step that we take towards God, he reciprocates with a step from him, so to speak, towards us, We get more blessing. We get more goodness. And thus that triggers, that precipitates the next stage of us being more interested in this relationship. If we re-read these verses, we see an entire process, a movement that begins with a small step, a small, very difficult step, but gets better and better and better with larger leaps. Self-reinforcing leaps of repentance. Now it's important to note that there is a definition of repentance in these verses as well. Verse 2 says, You shall, you shall return, you shall repent all the way back to Hashem your God. And you should hearken to his voice or you will hearken to his voice. It's a prophecy. You and your children, Bechol Levavcha u With all your heart. More accurately translated, with all your hearts and with all your soul. The commentaries note that the verse describes repentance as something that you do with all your hearts and with all your soul. This is the description of repentance. With all your hearts, with all your soul. And this formulation appears elsewhere. In the Shema. You shall love Hashem your God. Nav with all your hearts and with all your soul. And what does that mean in that context? What does it mean we have to love Hashem our God with all our hearts and with all our soul? Well, hearts, we have two hearts. Yei tov, With all our soul, even if He takes away our soul. We have to love Hashem our God even if it means forfeiting our lives. What does it mean to do something with all your heart, with all your soul? To do it completely with every part of you participating, the good and the bad? And to do it even if it means you're going to die. To do it with a degree of martyrdom The commentaries tell us repentance is something that is akin to martyrdom. We have to forfeit, essentially, our lives to properly do this. To repent properly demands a degree of self-sacrifice akin to martyrdom. Because it is a repudiation of your existing self. If a person repents, they're acknowledging that the way they behaved yesterday is not proper and have to dissociate from that person. That's self-sacrifice. And at least at the beginning stages of this repentance process that's going to result in Messiah, it's going to be very difficult but what's really pleasant about it is that though the initial stages of this continuum are difficult, right away the mighty responds in kind. He'll return your captives. He'll gather you in from all the nations that you've been dispersed to. You could be at the very far-flung corners of the world. And from there he will gather you in and take you and bring you to the land that you've been hoping for, you've been yearning for. And he'll do good to you. And he'll increase you more than your forefathers. He'll circumcise your heart. And all those curses and all those terrible maledictions will go upon your enemies and upon your haters. We have stage one of this continuum of this process. It's very difficult. But once you do it, you become a recipient of overwhelming divine goodness God says, you turn to me, I will turn to you. And you'll be a recipient of all manners of benefits. Your captives will be given back to you. You'll be a recipient of divine mercy. There will be the ingathering of exile, the circumcision of the heart, the punishment, those maledictions, those curses will be redirected to your enemies. And that is a very wonderful result to what started off as being very difficult. And it causes, it begets a second round of repentance, and that's verse 8. And this one is not as hard, it's not as difficult, because we see the fruits of our relationship with the Almighty, and we want more of it. And we return to Him And again, he returns to us. And thus, this process is self-reinforcing, and it's a virtuous cycle. And even though at the initial stages it was very difficult, it becomes easier and easier. Because each successive step unlocks more blessing, which makes you want more of it. Which engenders even more divine closeness, which makes us want even more of that. And so on and so on until we have complete repentance. Verse 9, abundance, prosperity. The Almighty will delight over you like He delighted over your forefathers, which again, verse 10, leads to a third instance of repentance and so on. If we don't understand this point, it may be very hard for us to imagine how the whole nation can repent and come back to God. We're under the impression, at least maybe we were under the impression, or some are under the impression, that there has to be some some supernatural, miraculous, divine intervention to effectuate Messiah. The Ramban, and really the verses, tells something else. Repentance itself, the first step may be very difficult, but it begets blessing and goodness that makes the next level of repentance much more palatable, much more desirable. And that creates this continuum. And once you have this momentum, the subsequent stages could be much larger and much easier. The first stage, yes, it's like martyrdom. But once you see the benefits and the fruits of being close to the Almighty, the benefits are more appreciable, it gets easier and easier. So we're seeing here maybe the, the outlines of, of, of how Messiah works. It's a result of closeness that is brought about by repentance. Now, the subject is not fully resolved yet. Because what causes the repentance? What causes a nation that may be distant from their creator, what causes this nation to suddenly wake up one day and say, I want to repent? Where does that initial repentance come from? What were the conditions before that initial repentance that brought about that interest, that desire for repentance? What causes the initial repentance? And here's where we open up the whole subject of Messiah. The Talmud tells us the book of Sanhedrin, page 97b. Rabbi Eliezer says, if the Jews repent, they will be redeemed. If they do not repent, they will not be redeemed. He gives us a a very binary formulation here. Repentance causes Messiah. Non-repentance causes non-Messiah. If we repent, we will be redeemed. If we do not repent, we will not be redeemed. That is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Yoshua says, is that true? If they don't repent, they won't be redeemed? No, that's not true. So what instead will happen if they don't repent? The Almighty will force their hand. He will make sure that there's a new king whose decrees are as harsh as Haman. And thanks to those awful draconian decrees, the nation will repent. Everyone agrees that Messiah is an outgrowth of repentance. Rabbi Elias says repentance has to be from within. If you repent from within, then you have Messiah. If you don't repent, well then you don't have Messiah. Rabbi Yahushua does not contest that Messiah is only the byproduct of repentance. But he tells us there's more than one way to achieve repentance. One way or the other, there will be Messiah because one way or the other, there will be repentance. You could have repentance, which is the nation opts into it. The nation understands this and they choose to repent. Or they will be forced to repent. The Almighty will appoint a Haman-like figure. And just as Haman got the nation in Persia to repent when they realize that if they repent, there's mass genocide. So too, there can be another way to repent. Haman can be resurrected because Haman will get the Jews to repent more than anyone else, faster than anyone else. I have a book in my house authored by my great-grandfather. He was a professor and an author in Germany. And he wrote a book in 1937 in uh, very scholastic German called The History of the Jews in Berlin and Brandenburg, which is like a province in, in, in Germany. And he wrote this history in 1937, which we know this is already four years after the Nazis took power now, uh, I, I open it and I, I cannot understand a word because it's written in a foreign language. But this past Sukkot, we had some guests from Germany. I said, Germany, maybe you could translate some of this. Turns out that the, the woman, she's a professional translator. German to English. That's what she does. So I brought up the book and she started reading. And it was unbelievable the, the citations that she read where he was writing about this incredible renaissance that happened in Germany after the rise of the Nazis. The shuls that were previously empty are packed. And there is this national reckoning where the German Jews realized they made a terrible mistake to say, let us embrace German patriotism and nationalism and we'll become more German than the Germans and they'll accept us and we'll become integrated and we'll assimilate and we'll have this idyllic utopia. We'll be these wonderful Germans and they'll accept us. It turns out the Jews in Germany realized that that was a mistake. They forgot about the roots, but they were reminded about it with horrific and brutal macabre violence, and anti-Semitism, and subjugation, and marginalization, and of course, genocide. To me, this was an example of this idea. The Talmud tells us, Haman actually has power to bring us to repentance if we don't want to do it voluntarily. One way or the other, says Rabbi Yoshua, the Jews will repent. And we get to choose the kind of repentance that brings about Messiah. This is a terrifying idea. Repentance will happen. Messiah will happen. But there may be a national repentance that is a byproduct, that is an outgrowth of really horrific conditions. When things are awful, when things are dire, when things are desperate, when we really feel threatened and destabilized, we actually remember who we are. And the Talmud tells us this is an option that we can choose. If you go back to the verse in Deuteronomy that talks about Messiah, it starts in chapter 30, but really chapter 29, it talks about how the Jews will be making poor choices and they'll be banished from the land and they'll be scattered throughout the world and the mighty will uproot us from the land with with anger, with wrath, with great fury and cast us to a foreign land as as this very day. If you think about it, that section about Messiah that says that we'll repent and we'll have Messiah, it starts off with, or the, The backdrop for it is exile and subjugation and suffering and dispersal and slaughter. And then we have repentance. So it's already hinted to in Scripture that there can be a repentance that is born about of very terrible circumstances. But the fundamental insight is that everything that we talk about, about Messiah, Including the circumcision of the heart, it's all a product of repentance, one way or another. It all begins with us below. Repentance. This is the axle that moves the wheel of Messiah, and the whole debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua is only what type of repentance begets Messiah. According to Rabbi Eliezer, it has to be voluntary. If we opt for, if we opt to repent then we have Messiah. If we don't repent, then we don't have Messiah. Says Rabbi Yeshua, no. Messiah will happen. And you're right. Messiah will happen as a result of repentance. But we can choose to repent or we can be forced to repent. This is the key. This is the catalyst. This is the impetus of Messiah. Repentance. And I think it's a very valuable insight for us. Because it shows us what we need to do. You know, we have talk about Messiah. You know, I'm not exactly a politician, and I'm not I'm not gonna what can I do to prepare for Messiah? We know it's repentance, that's the answer. And of course, repentance is, is a massive subject in Jewish philosophy. And there's no amount of repentance that is negligible. So preparing for Messiah is repentance. And even preparing for repentance itself is already a category of repentance. And I will tell you that this subject, it's, it's a very flowery subject. Messiah. Oh, utopia. Oh, we're going to have the land and everyone's going to be subject to us. It's a very serious subject, and it's not necessarily going to be beautiful and idyllic and this panacea of goodness to arrive at Messiah. It could be very violent, and this is what the source is saying. We'll talk more about this. There's no way for us to opt out of it. This is why, and for it's important for us to know, to learn. We want to be educated. The Talmud tells us that someone who is placed in a very unusual situation where on one hand they have to separate from something, on the other hand they find themselves to be inseparable from that thing. You now the context of it, it's talking about idolatry. A person so connected to idolatry, but they're forced to abandon the idolatry, they die. When someone becomes inextricably entangled with a Yetzirah, an evil inclination. And the Yetzirah gets eliminated and they have developed a dependency, a need for it because they become so enmeshed in it, they die. The Yetzirah is going to be eliminated. It's going to start off with Repentance. What about those people who don't repent? We talk about it, again. the sources talk about this. Just as was the case in Egypt, there were 80% of the Jews who didn't make it. Why? Why didn't they make it? This is the mechanism of, of, of why they died. Because they had become so entangled in Egypt that now they had to leave Egypt. But they couldn't leave Egypt because there were two Committed, they were too dependent upon it, and therefore the only solution was for they for them to die, because they were going to leave Egypt. And if you pull Egypt out of them, the result of it is because they've grown so dependent upon it, they died. There's going to be a point in somehow through this messianic process where the Yetzirah is eliminated. And someone who has not prepared themselves for that, who has not thought and strategized and worked towards disentangling themselves from the Sahara, weaning themselves from the Sahara, overcoming all their little instincts and, and whims of the Sahara, if someone has not began that process, then there's no way for them to survive the Messianic Transformation. I know it's scary stuff, but you came here for some truth. This is this is what our Sadists tell us. And therefore, what we need to do right now is to repent. Because that's the only way to prepare for Messiah. I want to share with you all an interesting insight that I had researching this subject, thinking about it really. The Talmud... In the book of Shabbos, on page 118b, gives us a very simple recipe for Messiah. It makes it very neat. It's simple. It's clear. If somehow we can control all of the Jewish people for eight days, Messiah will be here. How so? Says the Talmud. If Israel, i.e. the Jewish nation, if they observe two Shabbos according to the halacha, according to the letter of the law, if every Israelite, if every Jew observes two Shabbos back to back, right away Messiah will come. Simple formula. Get the 15 to 20 million Jews to all observe Shabbos, not one week, for two weeks, Messiah will come. So, of course, this is an example of repentance, right? We have, unfortunately, many Jews who are not observing all the laws of Shabbos according to the halacha, according to the letter of the law. So this fits in nicely with what we've been talking about hitherto, that repentance brings Messiah. But here we have a more specific, so to speak, mitzvah not general repentance, it's repentance specifically in relation to the laws of Shabbos. Now, why specifically does Shabbos engender redemption? Why would the whole nation, observing two weeks of Shabbos, completely according to the way the Almighty instructed us, why would that result in Messiah? So I think the answer, really, if you understand what Shabbos is all about, you know that Shabbos is all about faith. On Shabbos, we don't do work. We have a cessation from any control over the world. Anything that we can do to to improve the world, to create in the world, to assume ownership and dominion over the world, all that gets suspended on Shabbos. Of course, we know there are 39 categories of work, and it's not just work, it's it's creative work. It's work that display or that exhibit a human asserting control over the world. And by abstaining from any creative work, that is a tacit acknowledgement of the complete dominion of God. So every week, we have the great fortune and the great privilege to cease acting as a creator and to thereby fully accept God as the sole creator. So it makes sense that Shabbos really is a very important mitzvah. Of course, we know that. But it makes sense that it would potentially lead towards Messiah because this is repentance. We're acknowledging God. We're coming back to him. Now, the Talmud one page later tells us that... Shabbos is about partnering with the Almighty in Genesis, in creation. Which is a very unusual statement. A partner with God in creation, in Genesis? Creation, Genesis is over. That happened some time ago. What does it mean that we can partner with God, in the action of Genesis? Evidently, what I say this is telling us is that Genesis is not over. This world is not complete. There's something about this world that is left undone, and it's our mission to do it, and thereby to partner with God. And by doing that, we complete creation. Well, if Shabbos is about assigning God as the master of the world and saying we're not in charge, he is. Now we see what's missing in Genesis and we understand how we can be God's partner in that. What's missing in Genesis is that the world's not complete. Why? Because the dominion of the Almighty is contested. God's not present in the world because we choose to say that, well, we're in charge. And that role to coronate God over this world that he left to us. And when we do that, we partner with him in finishing the job of creation in this world. And now it makes a lot of sense that that brings redemption. If God is brought into this world, well, then Genesis has been completed. We were his partners. Well, okay, this world's completed. Now it's time to move on to the next stage. Once the world is completed... The mission over here is done. This world's it's been done. Genesis is over. Okay, now we can move to the next epic of history, and that is what we call Messiah. So we see repentance in general, and we see it manifested specifically with relation to Shabbos. That's the uh, the, the archetypal example of repentance bringing it to the world and finishing the creation of the world, finishing Genesis, concluding this world, the world's been perfected, it's time to move on to the next phase of existence, our nation's job, so to speak. We've finished it. Now it's time for Messiah to come and fix the whole world in general. So I had an idea. Here's the idea. There's only one mitzvah that Gentiles are not allowed to do. The Talmud makes a list of two mitzvos. The Talmud says, well, Gentiles cannot observe the Shabbos and they cannot study Torah. But with regards to Torah, there are exceptions. Anything that is related to them, any Torah that's pertinent, well, that they can study. Not only that, if they do study it, then they're as holy as the high priest. So not only can a Gentile study Torah, if it's pertinent to them, but the Talmud says in two places, the book of Sanhedrin, page 59a, and the book of Avodazar, page 3a, if they do study Torah, they are like a Kohen Dradl. They're like a high priest. So if you, so there's two mitzvahs, but one of them, there are exceptions. So there's really only one mitzvah that Gentiles are precluded from doing. And that's Shabbos. I think what this is telling us is, this mitzvah symbolizes Messiah. This mitzvah symbolizes us partnering with God to finish Genesis. That is our national responsibility. The Jewish people have responsibility, and that is to partner with God. Of course, Abraham got it started and we've been working at it for thousands of years, it's to partner with God to finish Genesis. And that brings Messiah. And what's Messiah's job? Once that role of history is done, well, okay, Messiah's job now is to perfect the whole world. And of course, to elevate us as well to the next level, but to elevate the nations as well. So to me, this was a, a very interesting insight. Like, Talmud tells us that every myth that the Gentiles can do, every single one, besides for one, Shabbos. And the Talmud tells us, well, Shabbos, that's the mitzvah that most represents the idea of repentance bringing about the arrival of Messiah. So the insight that I had was that, well, our nation's responsibility is to bring Messiah. And Messiah's responsibility, once we move on to the next phase of existence, the next epoch of history, well, that is to elevate the nations as well. We had our Sinaiatic revelation Messiah's job is to make that commitment to God to make it ubiquitous and universal. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've discovered what the actual trigger for Messiah is, and that's repentance. And I think if we assess the world, assess the situation, you can make the case that we are in the best of times. And the worst of times, the state of the Jewish people vis-a-vis repentance, it's highly polarized. On one hand, you know, the nation seems to be very distant from our mission. There's more assimilation, more loss of Jewish identity than ever before, more intermarriage than ever before. Even the shuls, many of them are empty, and membership is hemorrhaging. You can make a very bearish case for the state of the Jewish people. But we also have the best of times. You know, we have more yeshivos and more Torah being studied and taught than really any time in our history. Jewish people, we could quibble about the details of this, but we have control of much of the land of Israel? There has been this reconstitution of one segment, or of many segments really, of Jewish people, but coalesced into one place, the land of Israel. So there are a lot of things that are very positive, and thus the story of the Jewish people today is really a study in contrasts, best of times and worst of times. But it's clear that there's still a lot of room for repentance. And over the last, I would say, 200 years, there have been various movements that started, maybe saw some traction, had some success, had some momentum, but ultimately sputtered. Over the last 200 years, we've seen really the trend go away from religion. The Jews being exposed to the greater world, being welcomed into the halls of Society at large, and the academies, and the universities, and professions. And many Jews chose to leave the shtetl behind. And of course, there have been various efforts to try to change that. Even in the 1850s, the great Rabbi Israel Salanter was arguably the greatest Jew of the 19th century. He started this movement to try to bring the Jews back to God and to Torah. And even in the 1910s, a uh, Rav Kuk in the land of Israel went to kibbutz after kibbutz to try to reignite the spark of 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 Torah in the hearts of the Jewish people. It didn't have really a lot of traction, but after the Six Day War and the open miracles that were witnessed, there was a veritable explosion of repentance. There was a movement that gained tremendous traction. And there were many, many hundreds, thousands of penitents. And there were those who predicted that this will result in a tidal wave of repentance that will eventually cover the whole nation. It seems like that movement sputtered as well. And today... We're kind of in this weird period where I think, this is again me speculating here, I think that the grounds are ripe and fertile for a mass repentance movement amongst our nation, where the nation really comes back to God with all our hearts and with all our soul, ready to give up everything for it. And that will bring about Messiah. I think the grounds are ready for it, but I don't, I don't see how it works. And of course, maybe that's up for us to, uh, to author the story of how it's going to work. But if you think about it, in every time in history that our nation reached a low point, it was always a result of a competing philosophy there was uh you know the the humanistic this idea that uh, you know we're all humans and if we're just nice to each other everyone could flourish and of course that is nice but in the years and decades since that began the renaissance the emancipation we've seen more slaughter and more human brutality than ever before and there was socialism, and there was communism, and there was secular Zionism. Going back in history, we had all sorts of movements, the Hellenistic movement, and the Karaites, and all these movements to go away from Torah. There was an ideology that was captivating, and it was exciting, and that people thought could rival this old idea of, of Torah and mitzvot. Today, I don't see an ideology all those other philosophies crumbled. What are people today fighting for? What are people today willing to die for? I don't see a competing philosophy. Torah still remains. Torah is undefeated. What other ideologies today are competing? There's nothing left. So to me, it would seem... Again, this is total speculation, it would seem to me that the, the ground is ripe for the people to come back to God, for the people to appreciate, to see the beauty and, and the rigor and the, the wonderful life design, the wonderful life order, and the truth of the Torah. There's no competition, really. The real competition is for attention. There's so many distractions. And attention is the one resource that does not scale. And I don't think there's been a time in history that attention has been this captive. And there's movies and television and sports and politics and every inane triviality and all the silly nonsense that's so addictive, YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, I think that if we could just get everyone's attention, the people are ready to repent. All the other ideologies have crumbled. There's nothing left. How it works, again, I don't know. But what we do know for sure is that the only way Messiah comes, it's only as an outgrowth of repentance. When will the Redeemer come? When the penitents repent in Jacob. What does that look like? There may be more than one way to arrive at that goal. One way or another, our nation will repent. Who knows? How many casualties we'll lose? It could be 80%. It could be. We we want to talk about the reality here. One way or another, there will be repentance and there will be Messiah. And this is going to bring us to our next subject that I want to ponder. And that is the path dependence, so to speak, of Messiah. Messiah. What's clear from the sources is that Messiah is something that will happen. But how will it happen? What is the path that we will take to get there? That is not fixed. And we even spoke about it today. The way to arrive at Messiah is with repentance. But there could be a path of repentance where a Haman-like character compels us to repent. What does Messiah look like if we choose to go there, if we earn it with our righteousness versus what Messiah will look like or could look like in the event that we choose to not embrace repentance and to not embrace Messiah and to be compelled to repent and to be forced into Messiah against our will? Those two worlds may be very different. Next time, please, God. We will speak about the variability of Messiah. Messiah apparently is not just one thing. The characteristics of the various types of Messiah we can earn maybe are the same. But the paths to get there are really in our hands. And what does it look like when we arrive? It could be very, very different as we shall see. Please don't get to it next time. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby@gmail.com. at gmail.com. It was a pleasure to study this very important and perhaps terrifying subject with y'all from the Torch Center in Easton, Texas. I appreciate your attention and your time and your friendship. Send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback to RabbiWolby at gmail.com. I appreciate you, and I hope to hear from you soon.